I'm having a great time with the research. We got to work on new problems. Not a lot of people are holding you to deadlines like they used to, so that's been really hard for me. It was an adjustment to become a student again, but I have a feeling that the most challenging parts are yet to come. I've realized that I've learned a lot and grown a lot as a graduate student. You're listening to Vitamin PhD, a podcast from Boston University delivering career narratives and skills know-how to supplement your doctoral studies. Welcome to Vitamin PhD. I'm Sarah Hokinson, and I'm the Assistant Provost for Professional Development and Postdoctoral Affairs at Boston University. And today we're continuing to navigate careers in higher education with Adela Panagos from Boston College. I know we have someone from Boston College here at BU. Um, but we're delighted to have Adela here, and she wears two hats at Boston College that we'll talk about today. So she is a visiting assistant professor of the practice in Hispanic studies and also coordinates their upper level Spanish language program. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me, Sarah. I think it is a very important venture that you are undertaking to help students think of other options and not necessarily just the academic path. You have these two roles and I'm assuming that they are both distinct but they also overlap. So tell me a little bit about what you're doing at Boston College. Sure, I am going to talk about what I do at Boston College. I also run uh, an organization that advises the students to get into college. So oh, I neat. will talk about those three things, yeah. if that's all right. Of course, you. yes, we want to navigate the full pathways. So we sure. have a bonus one today. Sure. So um, at Boston College, as an assistant professor of the practice, I get to teach um, two Spanish courses every semester. And then as a coordinator, I am responsible for all the courses that are the upper level of Spanish courses and I have to make sure that I hire the appropriate faculty to teach those courses and also that I work very closely with them to develop exams, exercises and everything else that is necessary to develop in order for the students to be successful in the courses. Um, so the good thing about me teaching is that I know what the needs of the students are pretty clearly and I hope that that helps me to design then the courses for that particular level. So it sounds like you're juggling your time um, pretty effectively if you can do these three different things. So you have the, the coaching model, you have the administrative side, and then you have the actual hands-on teaching. So how do you think about compartmentalizing your day or how do you wear all of those hats simultaneously? So I try to be very organized and at Boston College, I am there on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And then on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I do the academic advising for the students who are applying to college. Sometimes those things will overlap depending on the needs of the day. But in general, I try to keep my life as organized as possible. I think that um, life is going to throw curveballs at you. So you don't need to help life. <laughs> and the more that you can keep things in a calendar, I think the better off you are. So tell me a little bit, how did you transition from being a PhD graduate to taking that first leap? Um, what were some of your thought processes or how did you end up on this particular path? So when I was here doing my graduate work, um, I hadn't even started my program yet. When I got a phone call from the university where I got my master's asking me to apply for an administrative position. And when I spoke to my advisor here at BU, he said to me that if I could go into the administrative path, I should, 
just because you never know what the market is going to be. And at that time, I was an international student. So knowing that I had his support, I ended up doing my coursework in a year, and I kept in touch with the people that had contacted me about the administrative position, which was at the University of Notre Dame in multicultural student affairs, an area that I really didn't think I had a lot of experience in, but they were looking in particular for someone who was going to run their academic programs. I did my academic work. I taught two classes, took five, but I knew that perhaps at the end I was going to have a full-time position, so I thought it was worth the sacrifice for that year. And sure enough, in March, I got an email from the person that at the time was the director of multicultural student programs and services at Notre Dame, and she asked me to formally apply, which I did. And then in May, I had um, been offered the position. That's amazing. So you used your network, basically, um, to help solidify that position and also focus yourself at the same time. So you knew, basically, before you were graduating where you were going, and that enabled you to be selective about how you used your time while you were here at BU. Absolutely. And then when I was working full-time, I also had to be pretty intentional about how I was going to allocate my time to finish then the dissertation. Yeah. Which was a good, (laughs) it's a good set of skills to have. So for you, was there a leap between the teaching that you did as a PhD student versus the teaching that you did at Notre Dame or now? And if so, how did you bridge some of those knowledge gaps from being a graduate student to a full-time instructor? So I was fortunate enough that in every program that I've been, I was the instructor for the class. So I really didn't have to bridge Um, that gap as much as I think other students who only run discussion classes or um, who just help out as TAs in grading. But I do definitely think there are skills that you can bring in, even if you're not the only responsible instructor for the course. And that is um, helping your students during office hours and advising them in a way that then you will have perhaps um, skills for an advising position if you decide to go that route. Um, You can also organize meetings with your students in addition to discussion groups that you might be leading, and that shows your leadership skills. So I think that the more that you can veer out a little bit of just running discussion sessions or simply grading, the better off you'll be in the long haul. That makes a lot of sense to me. But I want to pick up on your third hat, because I think this is more unknown to graduate students in terms of starting your own business. And even knowing that you can have other jobs and have a business on the side. So how did that start? Did that start right away? Or is that something that grew over time as you got more administrative experience? So it grew over time as I got more administrative experience. As I said, my first job was in multicultural student programs and services. And I was responsible for running a mentoring program there and also for running an advising group that will help students from underrepresented groups to look at PhD programs as options. And then I went into advising. Um, I was a first year advisor at the University of Notre Dame, then I was an assistant dean at the University of Notre Dame, and then I was the associate dean of academic advising at Harvard. So it was through my advising experiences that I thought I was qualified to start a business in terms of advising in particular, but I also think that if you're going to start a business and you have a degree in arts and letters or liberal arts, you need to do a little bit of due diligence and get ready for what it takes to have your own business. So what I did is I went into Coursera 
um, which is an online platform, and I signed up for a class that was a business class, and he talked about how to start your own business, and then I'm a pretty resourceful person, and I think those are the things that you learn as a graduate student, that you need to learn how to do research, and if you can do research on your discipline, I think that you can do research on anything else. So I discovered that in Boston there was a group of former entrepreneurs that advise people who are starting their business, and I contacted them, and then I got a mentor through that organization. That's so cool. And yeah, whether it's Coursera or Canvas or edX, there are all of these sometimes free, but sometimes nominally costing courses that can help you get those additional things that you might need that you don't have from your PhD because you studied something else. So it's nice to know that there are resources out there that maybe aren't as intensive for new entrepreneurs starting out. Tell me a little bit about and it could be the totality of what you do day to day, but what are some of the most rewarding things about the pathway that you've taken? I think definitely the more rewarding things for me, and it might have to do with my personality, is that I really um, cherish when I see a student getting what they want. You know, whether it be in the classroom when a student succeeds, learning Spanish and really getting to a point in the language that they didn't have when they started the class. And then after that, they start thinking about either studying abroad or applying for a Fulbright. And I am also the advisor for the Fulbright um, scholarship for Latin America and the Iberian Peninsula at BC. So I can help students write their essays. And when they get to that point, um, I'm really, it's very rewarding to see where they've been and how much they've grown. And then for the students that are advising the college planning, it's rewarding when I see that they get into the school that is the perfect fit for them and where I know that they're gonna be happy for the next four years. Because that was why I got into that, that even though I was in really good schools, you know, I work at Harvard, I also work at MIT, I saw that students in every school no matter how much we think is the best school in the world, some of them are not happy there. And I think it's so important for students to go to an institution where when they graduate, they can look back and be very proud of the place that they went to and also wanna give back. I think that's really important too. And it's so often that we follow a particular pathway because it's the way we think we should be. We should, we should go to Harvard or we should get a PhD or we should do a postdoc um, because someone's told us along the way that that's, how it should be. And so it's nice to have outside advisors like you that can provide that bigger picture of here are all the things you can be um, and what sounds awesome to you, which is not always, sometimes that conversation happens really late in the game for graduate students and postdocs. Um, but I agree with you. One of the most rewarding things about my job is you know, the cards that I get from postdocs when they get a job after I've looked at their CV. and. It's not that I take credit for them getting the job, it's their qualifications and voice in the cover letter, but um, it's meaningful that in some way the conversation that I had with them, you know, they felt like it made a difference. Um, on the flip side though, being an administrator myself, I know how challenging it can be. So tell me a little bit about um, what are some of the challenges either in running a business or um, in the teaching and administrative positions that you hold? Well, I think that one of the biggest challenges today is that a lot of students have a lot of pressure. Um, some of the pressure is self-imposed, and then other pressure is because I believe that um, living in such a high social media age, 
by nature is gonna create a lot of pressure that I didn't have. We all have um, our fake our fake Facebook life, right? <laughs> yes. yes. Um, so you know, and it's, for them, it's like a Snapchat twenty four seven. So that also creates um, is pressure, and then it also brings in a lot of mental health issues. And I think that that's a very difficult thing to navigate because while I think there are some students that are very much in need of mental health resources, I also have seen other students that say they have certain things that are never um, diagnosed, so they self-diagnosed. And I think it is very important to navigate wisely um, this very important issue. I think that's an important point that um, not only finding the right advisors to help you navigate some of the things that are challenging, but also um, being able to even just articulate the help that you need um, appropriately is an important point too. Um, yeah, and I think the mental health crisis in education is just such an overarching challenge for all levels, and it, it sounds like you're advising more at the undergraduate level. I'm curious, like, one of the things that shouldn't have caught me by surprise as in the role that I have but did was just when postdocs were coming to me with difficult issues and realizing but my PhD is in biochemistry and biophysics. Um, how, do, how do I develop the right tools to even triage these conversations? Because sometimes I'm not the ultimate person that solves the problem, but I am the person that helps them find the resource that they need. So as you've dealt with some of these students in distress, are there any particular um, avenues that you've taken to, um, or was it really your background in student affairs that helped you navigate some of these things? I think it's definitely my background in student affairs and just in administrative roles prior to this that has gotten me ready because I know immediately if a student comes with a problem. For example, we had a student who didn't show up for the final on Saturday. And immediately I know exactly who I need to contact, even though I've only been in this role at BC for a year and a half because I was a dean before. I knew they needed to contact me. So now I know exactly what is the language that I'm looking for on a website or what are the type of people that we need to contact and who are the people that we shouldn't contact. You know, because I think that those two things are equally important because if you contact the wrong person, your student is never going to get the help that they need. Right, So you have to be somewhat wise about knowing the different layers that there are at every university and get to know, if you're in an administrative role, the makeup of your university because every place is unique and every place has different places that help students with the same mission, but it might not be the same name of the place. Yeah, and this comes back to your earlier point of doing your research and not just doing the research on what does an administrative pathway take, but how are different universities structured and how do they work? And I think hopefully through this podcast, we can continue to demystify that. But I'm sure there are many similarities between our um, Boston University and Boston College, but also some differences in the way that we're structured and layered. And as an administrator, the biggest tool that you have in your toolkit is knowing where to go and, and who to call quickly. So I completely agree that that is um, something that you pick up over time. It took me a while. Yes, yes. And the other biggest challenge, I think, today are the parents. Interesting. You know, I don't have, the postdoc parents don't call me. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, well, you know, because in my role um, as a college advisor, I can see the parents always wanting their kid to get in everywhere. And 
I have never worked with somebody who gets into every single school. And that's an exception, not the rule. You know, the rule is that you're going to get accepted to some places and you're going to get rejected to other places. That's why it's so important for my role to help the students develop a diverse list of colleges. Not all of them can be in the top 25 because otherwise you're not going to go to college. Uh, but I also see in the classroom, you know, some students that tell me, that they have a lot of pressure from their parents. Now, the parents, fortunately, do not call me as much, um, but even so, that I don't get the calls, I do see how some of them feel that pressure. And so as part of your job then, basically giving students the framework for how to have some of those conversations with their parents to basically normalize what the real landscape looks like as opposed to the idealized trajectory of 12 admissions to every college that they apply to? Well, I have to talk to the students and I do talk to them, but sometimes I also have to talk to the parents. You know, like for example, today I'm gonna have a conversation with a parent that is very upset that her, that his daughter didn't get into the college that he wanted her to get in. And I sort of knew that she probably wasn't gonna get in and he also did because he did acknowledge throughout the conversations that it was a reach, but I don't know what he wants to do now. However, I do have to have a conversation with him today. So I talk to the parents a lot more in my college advising um, business than I thought I would. You know, um, they are the ones that make the first contact usually. And then I talk to the students. Now, there are some parents that are great. We talk, we have that first conversation. And then after that, I am only working with the students. And those are probably the students that benefit the most from the services. But then there are other parents that think that they're going to be involved in the entire process. And I mean, as a person who runs the business, I have to cater to that as well. Um, but I try to balance it out so that they understand that you know, maybe their child didn't get in the school that they wanted to get in and they, the parents wanted to get in, but um, there is a reason. And if the student wants to go to that school because that's their dream school, then I talk to them about the possibility of transferring. Interesting. I mean, it's good that you're able to provide those flexible options to the students and to the parents, but I would imagine that some of these difficult conversations take a toll. Um, and whether you're a faculty member advising a student who maybe doesn't get the faculty position in the first time on the market, um, or you're in your role talking directly with um, potential undergraduate applications, there's that um, emotional exhaustion that comes with um, managing other people's disappointment. And so I'm just wondering, like, how do you decompress at the end of your day when you, after you talk to this um, very disappointed father, what will you do? I probably will do this before I talk to the disappointed <laughs> parent. Um, so I am a person who is very rooted in her faith. I am a practicing Roman Catholic, and praying is a huge component of my life. And when I'm going to have a difficult conversation or a difficult day at work, which I know it's coming because I'm going to have to meet with people that I don't necessarily want to meet with, I spend time praying before I go into the conversation. Because then I feel that it is out of my hands and I'm hoping that the Holy Spirit is going to inspire me to say the right thing. Wow, that's really cool. I, I haven't tried that approach, but I do sometimes do a minute paper before I enter into what I know will be a challenging situation of just 
whether it's getting my thoughts out of what are the key things I want to impart to this person or just getting my thoughts out about what are the key things I'm worried about in this conversation. It gives me like a quiet space to really think about um, what it is that I'm preparing for. So I can definitely relate to that for sure. Um, so before we wrap things up, we usually end these career exploration episodes in thinking about advice for PhD students. And so I'm going to break up the advice here in two parts because you are on two pathways in parallel. So you have this, so we'll start with the academic side first. So you have a combined administrative and teaching role. And I think that's pretty common. We have a lot of administrators here at BU that um, are also faculty members and contribute to teaching. So what would your advice be to a PhD student who's looking to go into not necessarily a tenured path, but maybe um, some combination of academic administration and, and teaching? How could they do what you did, which was focus the last year of their PhD on that step? Well, I think that first of all, they need to reach out to the people who know them best, right? So if they had really strong connections somewhere along the way, ideally in their undergraduate school, to reach out to some people there and just have perhaps an informational interview and figure out if they love that school, if there are some potential opportunities there for them. Um, I also think it's very important to be flexible in the sense not only of the job itself, but where the job is. I think that this is where graduate students tend to get uh, stuck, and particularly graduate students that go to a school that is in a beautiful city like Boston. You know, they don't wanna leave Boston. And if you want to really give yourself the best possible chance to have an administrative career in the long haul, I think at the beginning, thinking that you're gonna start in the city that you're gonna end, it's a little bit unreasonable. So having that flexibility, I think is key. Applying for jobs is obviously very important, but also being wise about the cover letter. You know, because you cannot use the same cover letter for every school. You need to read, do a little bit of research on the institution, so you use not only keywords for their mission in your letter, but also that you write the letter in such a way that it shows that you're the perfect fit for that particular job. In a sense, is doing the same thing that the graduate students did when they applied for the graduate program in that personal statement, but now it's put in, an, in a letter format. So that's several things that I would recommend for them. And um, I also think that, you know, as they are getting the PhD, try to either shadow a couple of times um, an office where you think you might look at a job that is like that to see what it is day to day and figure out if this is what you think you really want to do because sometimes our idea of a job and the job itself are completely different. The um, shadowing piece is a hidden gem of professional development because a lot of students are looking for internships and internships are great. Um, some of them are paid. I highly recommend them as a in-depth experience into a particular field. So now let's switch gears to the entrepreneurship side. So if you're a PhD student that really wants to think about starting a business after PhD, we've already talked about taking some courses in some variety on business, but it sounds like networking was pretty important for you. Were there other things that you think those students might want to consider as they're finishing their degree? I don't think you should start a business if you're not qualified to run that business. And I think that that is one of the challenges that I see every day 
in the people that do the college advising, and I mean there has been a lot of press lately on some probably um, practices that were not the most ethical, right? And I think that that is a very important thing. I mean, I wouldn't have a business if I didn't know how to advise people, right? And there are unfortunately people in this field that start the business just because they think, it is a lucrative business, but they don't necessarily have the qualifications. And although I'm sure they get hired, because unfortunately not every parent is well-informed about why this is all about, I think that if you have a PhD, you should, you owe it to your school and your own profession to start a business in something that you can run. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, there's this balance between um Having a PhD gives you such a generalizable set of problem-solving skills and a critical thinking approach that can be applied in a lot of different places. But I think sometimes we might project too far. So I think you bring up a valid point of, like, my PhD in biochemistry and biophysics doesn't qualify me to do absolutely anything that I want. There's a limitation to where that expertise can go um, without additional training. And so I still take professional development as an administrator all the time, and I think you have to to stay up on what's happening in the world and, and how our higher education is moving. So I think that's probably true of being an entrepreneur as well. I mean, you're embedded in higher education, but there's probably a lot that you have to keep up with as the trends are moving over time. Absolutely. And, you know, going to conferences, I think it's ex extremely important, you know, and that is something that I try to do at least once a year for both of the fields that I'm in. Um, I am part of a lot of groups that have discussions about both subjects, you know, language teaching and then um, college advising. So absolutely. I mean, I think that having a PhD trains you in a very unique way, but you can also, you also have to come to the realization that you don't have all the answers, which is okay. Um, but if you want answers, sometimes you just have to find avenues where you can get them. That's great advice. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, it's been a delight to have you on the show. And I'd like to take this opportunity to just acknowledge that we have a wonderful partnership with WTBU here at Boston University, and we are grateful for their partnership in producing this podcast. Thank you for listening to Vitamin PhD, and we look forward to our next episode.